Joining me this week, Sean Glennis. Hey. Stephen Coleman. Hello. Jake Trapila. Hey, hey. Hey. And uh, Adam Myros. It's like we're we're five men scattered across the country, uh, seemingly living unrelated lives. I was gonna say something about that. <laughs> like the five, these are five guys. What is this? A podcast about classic burgers and fries? It's, uh, <laughs> you know, is it right? Is it right by the Barnes and Noble? Can we go buy a copy of Cold Mountain for four ninety nine after we finish our fries and a burger? There's actually there's a there's a book that was written about us by a prominent journalist. It's called the uh, the five people you meet on a podcast. Oh. I, think the, I think the only way you're buying a copy of Cold Mountain is if you peruse the the books that are outside the Barnes and Noble that are sitting there for free. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the discounted books that basically say please steal us because we don't have room for these. Yeah, that's that's good. I actually had a friend that uh, she she used to work at a Barnes and Noble. And people would always come in and they go, what's the best-selling book of all time? I want to read the best-selling book of all time. And she'd hand, them a copy of the, no, she'd, she'd hand them a copy of the Bible. And then right. they'd be like, wow, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I just want to start off by saying, fuck you, Adam Myros. What did I do? Yeah, I, I, I wa- guess what I watched this week. Well, first of all, what did, what did you watch? You watched like 10 good movies, right? Uh, I watched... Like ten movies, I I don't know how many were good. I, I watched I watched one. I watched one. And this this is the uh, the amount of labor that I put in this podcast. The the love, the sweat, the tears, the uh, horrible ham fisted bullshit I put up with. I watched Crash this week, Myros. Ooh, I love movies about uh, sex with cars. Yeah, if only, if only. Um, now I, I just 2004's Crash or 2005's Crash, whatever. How long into Crash do you think it took before I rolled my eyes for the first time? Uh, I'm going to go real early. I mean, as soon as some of these uh, famous Hollywood stars who you never want to see in any movie show up, you kind of already lose interest. I literally did not make it through the opening credits before rolling my eyes because Don Cheadle's (laughs) opening monologue is just the biggest load of horse shit. It starts off with uh, with the titular Crash, of course, and then uh, Don Cheadle's just sitting there in his crash car, and he's just like, you know, in other cities, people touch each other all, all the time. They always brush by each other on the sidewalk. Here in Los Angeles, we're all driving around. We never come in contact with real people. Sometimes I think we just crash into each other so we could feel something. And then, that is literally, I think you have a fucking close head wound, Don Cheadle. Cue Dave Matthews Band. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> Actually, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because... Um, while I was watching, I got really bored because that movie's like over two hours long. It's so long. Uh, so I made a list of things I'd rather do than watch Crash again. Uh, so number one is watch David Cronenberg's Crash, which is a movie that isn't very good, but it's about people fucking on cars. Uh, watch literally any other Brendan Fraser movie, any of them. Monkey Bone. Monkey Bone. Sign me up for Monkey Bone. Uh, what about the the one where he's like a Mountie or something? Uh, yeah, Dudley, Dudley Do-Right. Do-Right. Yeah, I, I would watch Dudley Do-Right three times before Bedazzled. I watch Crash. Bedazzled? Oh, I would, I would definitely watch Bedazzled. George of the Jungle? Isn't it yes. Bedeviled or am I not? 
Bedazzled. That's also what Adam Myros did to his jeans to make them more fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> but that's unrelated. I, uh, I thought he dealt with like the devil, not like plastic jewels out of himself. <laughs> Seems Maybe like he was bedeviled. Bedazzled by it? a beautiful woman. You ever think about that? Yeah, well, but it's, it was like it's a, a it's an updated version of the Dudley Moore Peter Cook movie. Dudley do right more. Ah, it's really <laughs> we're learning things. <laughs> we're learning things. Uh, the next thing I would rather do is uh, lick Paul Haggis's head, and I would start uh, right between like his eyebrows and go all the way across the bald head down the back to the nape of his neck. Uh, <laughs> so that seems like what you thought about very specifically. Uh, very specifically. I mean, because I looked up a picture of Paul Haggis. I'm like, what does this asshole look like, anyways? And then I was just like, yeah, that's the kind of guy you just want to lick his head. Um, and then finally, the last thing I would do is I would play hacky sack uh, <laughs> with the members of the band Crash Test Dummies and all of the GOP debate candidates that are going to be debating tonight while listening to Dave Matthews' band perform Crash Into Me. So, what do you think Crush Test Dummies would say about that uh, that band? Well, I'd say, hey, do you guys want to play Hacky Sack? And they go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would imagine. I just want to know. I just want to know the the resids they get from uh, Dumb and Dumber. I don't, probably probably a nice check. You know, they probably get like thirty cents maybe for every uh, ten DVDs sold. Or every Comedy Central airing, which means they're rolling in it. Yeah, actually, if if even if they got like half a cent for every time Comedy Central has like ran that movie since 1998, they'd probably be just buying mansions left and right. Steve, I, I want to say I feel like you've you've really grown up. You you went through this whole <laughs> list and there was no mention of nails and dicks or anything of that nature. No, no, I think yeah, this is the first time I made a list without talking about putting a nail in my dick. <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know, we're actually we're, I, I've decided to change the topic of the podcast, and we're going to be talking about Gaspar Noe's "I Stand Alone," in which a man <laughs> nails his dick to a board. Wait, does ah. that happen? I thought you were talking about Shram. I... Oh, is that is that happening in Shram? I think it's Shram. I stand alone. What happens at I Stand Alone? Uh, uh, he, a lot of horror movies. Yeah, I think he like does he punch a pregnant lady? All of his movies are just there's something Wait, really. No, bad. no, he he shoots his uh, daughter in the throat and then rapes her. Right? Isn't that it? Oh. I thought it was the movie about the boys walking on the railroad tracks. <laughs> Stay by me. Yeah, I thought it was my favorite Creed song. Yeah, that's that's. True. Yeah, let's just. I I think you should watch that with the the family, a warm-hearted '80s classic. Yeah. I stand well, what I like to do is, you know, whenever I'm with my family on Christmas, once we've gone through Yule Log about 15 times, we switch over to my uh, DVD copy of Irreversible. And we watch that. We actually we watch it straight through, and then we watch it backwards, just so we can you know get get the story both ways. It's pretty great. So why 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 did you watch Crash, Steve? Um, well, I mean, I mean you, like having what are we talking about this week? Like a hackneyed discussion about like worst best picture winners? <laughs> no, no, but that that would be the winner. Uh, no, I watch Crash because one, you're an asshole. I didn't come up with this idea. This I am. I shouldn't take any of this. Who blood. did come up with this idea? Uh, uh, somebody's an asshole. I think it was Sean Glynis. All right, Sean's an asshole. Uh, the reason the reason why is not because we're discussing worst best pictures or worst Brendan Fraser movies or movies with a cast where all you can do is look at every name list and you're like, God, I fucking hate all these people. We're actually talking about hyperlink cinema. And what is that? 
I'm glad you asked, because we didn't know what this stuff was called either until we started looking it up. Basically, we're going to be talking about today movies where there's uh, multiple narratives, so it's kind of like a multi-linear narrative, but all the characters sort of, you know, they, they come together, they converge in the end, there's something tying them together. Hence, uh, Myros' joke in the beginning. <laughs> so... Obviously, Crash is an example of this. Uh, the other one that people generally think of right off the bat is like 21 Grams. I think that was the other big Oscar movie. So a, a lot of critically acclaimed movies between uh, like 2001 and maybe like 2009 really like to use this quite a bit. Uh, but it didn't necessarily start in the early 2000s, which I was, I was surprised that this trend was as old as it was. It actually kind of started back in the 1970s, right? Well, yeah, but uh, <clears throat> at least, if not earlier, I saw a list with earlier, but we should probably mention that it, it's rooted in literature. Uh, changing perspectives and narrators <laughs> within the same landscape is pretty common. Sure, sure. Um, what's, the, what's the book I was thinking of? Not uh, the, the Steinbeck book, not Grapes of Wrath. Um, East of Eden. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. Quite well, but, you know, it seems to work a little bit better in a book, whereas whenever it happens in a movie... It just sort of it, it kind of feels disconnected to me, and it also it kind of waters down the plot. Yeah, I feel like we have less expectations um, when it comes to reading literature. <clears throat> like we're more we're more open to um, uh, different uh, changes in format than we are with movies. Sure, sure. And the other thing is, and I, I kind of get this feeling too whenever I watch an anthology movie, where even if I like everything overall, I'm just like instinctively ranking the things in my head like, oh, yeah. I like this short part better than this short part, better than this, you know. And that definitely happens in these kind of movies as well where you know, maybe I enjoyed the first part of 21 Grams, but I hate the second part. Or maybe I'm watching Magnolia and I hate everything. And it's, it, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Well, there's, a, like, I, to me, one of the major obstacles you run into is is the time constraints compared, I mean, with a novel you can run on for, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred pages like East of Eden's a huge novel, and uh, you know, it's difficult to fit that level of bulk and characterization necessary to establish multiple narratives like that in a in a two hour time frame. And a lot of these movies that I sat through were, were pushing three hours, and it yeah. can get a bit much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sort of uh, I created a uh, kind of a taxonomy of um, when this is used or, or why it's used. <clears throat> um, so. Some of the films uh, use the format to survey like a place or like a community or a region. So like City of God is one that does that. Uh, some use it to explore a theme, like Magnolia um, or Love Actually or He's Just Not That Into You. Um, some use it to explore a certain trade, like Traffic or Syriana or uh, Altman's fashion show movie Preda Porter. Uh, some use it to explore like one instance, like Rashomon did it pretty famously. Um, Vantage Point, Amoros Peros kind of does that. Uh, Go does the same, if I'm not if if I'm not mistaken, um, where everyone is experiencing the same instance but in a different fashion. Um, yeah, and then there are some that use it to incorporate all of these things, like uh, Nashville and Shortcuts to a different degree use it to like um, combine the micro and macro of those things. Which I'm not sure where Pulp Fiction would fit into those, um, but. I didn't sit through that one. <laughs> well, I think um, it's a fashion statement. Like, um, I think it yeah. just works in Pulp Fiction just because it works. 
and I'd say throughout most of at least the mid to late aughts, it was just like this very trendy thing to do, and I think kind of very distracting um, to some of the plot lines. Mm-hmm. Well, and Pulp Fiction is an interesting case, too, because Pulp Fiction has this going on, but it doesn't feel like it's dragging the story down, and it's it's all really cohesive. Like, it it, obviously, like there's different oh. narratives going on, but it, it feels like it's all happening in the same world, and it makes sense for it to happen. Where some of these movies, I, it, they just they just drag on and on and on. And I think um, Amoris Peros is is good, but Twenty One Grams one of the reasons why I I just I can't sit through it. It's not even because it's a terrible movie or anything. It's just it drags so much to the point where you they just can't keep the pacing up because they're too concerned with trying to flesh out all these different narratives so they can get to their point at the end where they go, see, they're all in the same world and they're all converging on the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, true. Um, and I should have sat through that one as like an example of one that maybe doesn't succeed. But, Jake, you sat through Pulp Fiction. What were your um, experiences with this in mind? Uh, I sure did sit through it. Um, I will say, let me say right off the bat that when I was 14, when I first saw this film, I thought it was, you know, I held it near and dear to my heart. I thought it was pretty much the coolest movie ever, as most people do. And in fact, if you go to IMDb, it's actually number five on the top 250. Um, Yeah, it's surpassed by The Dark Knight, Godfather 2, Godfather, and Shawshank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Top 200 movies by people who wear cargo shorts unironically. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, um, so watching Pulp Fiction, the structure, I was just trying to look at it, and it's also, it plays a lot with um, perspective and how um, things take place from the, you know, the points of views from different characters, and there are sequences in the movies that there are some overlap, like we'll go back to the diner scene at the end, and then it's, it starts from um, Samuel Jackson and Travolta's point of view, and then it leads into the opening scene of the film, and I think the the way it's rearranged, it, you know, it could be inherently problematic because you think some scenes would drag longer than others. But I think, you know, for two, for a two and a half hour movie, it it flows very nicely, mm-hmm. and um, the structure it really works. Um, the it's bookended by the diner scenes, and I think that um, you know, it's definitely one of Tarantino's best efforts. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. can criticize it being ranked that loftily, but I mean, as far as what we were initially saying is is its cool factor. It is it is one of the coolest movies ever made. It's yeah. just it oozes that sort of uh, just really slick, fun yeah. uh, films making. Well, and I think especially like c- compared to some of the other movies that we're going to talk about, like these these aughts films that try and use some of the same things that Pulp Fiction did. They feel really like preachy and sort of ham fisted. Uh, obviously, Crash is the worst example. Uh, where uh, yeah. Pulp Fiction is just—it's a really short two and a half hours. You, I, you would you would think the movie's like ninety minutes long, but it's a lot longer than it actually feels like. Hmm. Yeah, the thing about Pulp Fiction too is um, it's kind of inspired a slew of Tarantino imitators. Like you, when all these movies started coming out after it, you couldn't help but think that people were saying it's like, oh, it's a Tarantino wannabe film. Mm-hmm. There's films like uh, Lockstock. And two smoking barrels, or Snatch, or Lucky Number Seven, or the what I consider to be like the worst movie ever made, The Boondock Saints. Those are all just inspiring <laughs> to be. Yeah, Tarant- Tarant- they're all Tarantino-esque, and so it's like he he kind of I don't know with his own style, he kind of brought the the whole hyperlink cinema to the foreground, and everyone just kind of started aping after it. 
Yeah, which it's it's really sad too because I mean Tarantino obviously really talented and uh, I, I'm not gonna go as far as to say that I really enjoy the movies of Kevin Smith too much, but I, I think Clerks is a cool little movie and it sucks that after both of them sort of had their big breakthroughs, then all we had was just clones of them, really super shitty clones. And the last thing you need to be in life is a clone of Kevin Smith. And I'm also yeah. glad you brought up Boondock Saints because that's like the apex of fucking cargo short cinema. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be like a snob or anything here, I mean, but seriously, like if you like dumb action movies or just you know movies that are ostensibly like oh cool or whatever, like, it's just it's so fucking lame. There's um a line from The Office. I think it was the season seven premiere. Um, Michael Scott's nephew is working at the office, and when they do his one-on-one interview, he says. Uh, yeah, I really like cinema. My favorite films are Citizen Kane and The Boondock Saints. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, pretty pretty brilliant, if you ask me. Byros, how about you? What, what did you watch this week? I know you watched a lot of stuff. A lot, a lot of stuff. Let's stay in, did you watch some stuff from the 90s? <clears throat> I did. Uh, well, is it more Asparos 90s or is it like early I think aughts? it's like 2001 or One. 2000. Yeah. One. Okay. Well, I guess uh, I think the only '90s films. Okay, yeah, I think the only '90s films I saw were uh, Shortcuts and uh, the Michael Haneke film uh, Code Unknown, and uh, those were about as polar opposite as you can get as far as this genre goes. Because Shortcuts, while it deals with some heavy stuff, it it's kind of a it's accessible. It's very accessible for a three-hour drifting narrative film. it's I I I don't think it's perfect. I think it it was a bit meandering as this sort of film needs to be, I guess, uh, which is one of the inherent problems we're gonna run into. Uh, but I liked it quite a bit, and uh, you can again see a lot of influence going forward. But it's the Haneke effort was less successful for me. I mean, he's I don't know if our audience is that familiar with Michael Haneke as a filmmaker, but He's very spare. Uh, there's like almost no music. It's very cinema verite. Like it, it's super slice of life. And you keep usually a, a Haneke film is like you're waiting for this hammer to drop and something horrible to happen. And uh, it never really does in Code Unknown. I mean, people have just kind of like quietly miserable lives that that uh, intersect and. It's so stripped down and spare that it's just it, it's very very difficult to get through. And it's it's not a it's a well crafted film, but it's just very inaccessible, very very inaccessible. <laughs> a thrill a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, I still haven't seen Shortcuts. I feel I feel bad. I I, have, I haven't seen either of the Altman movies that we're going to talk about, and that's one of those things where I I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm missing out on something. It's just one of those things. It's just, it's just one of those things. People are like, you seen Nashville? I'm like, the the TV show. And they're like, no, that's that's a totally different thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, and I'm glad you brought up Haneke too because. I've I've seen Code Unknown. Like I watched it a long time ago. I bought the, the box set with all those movies in it or whatever, and I watched it when I first got it. And I I know I've seen it, but I couldn't tell you a single thing about it because it doesn't have that that moment where it really grabs you at any point. It's just sort of you know nothing happens. Yeah, Haneke films are kind of like built around this like suspense element 
feeling this sort of building to something. And this is undercut by its narrative shifts, and it's just, it never comes together. I, again, it's a really well-crafted film, and it's it's thematically almost like a proto-babble. Oh, my God. <laughs> Myers, you're going full robot. That was scary. It actually, it, it, sounded, it sounded like you called it a pro bat, like you were just turned into a sheep momentarily, <laughs> like a robot sheep. <laughs> Proto babble. Uh, oh, uh, he's, you, you were losing you again. All we're getting is the ahs and then and then the sheep noises. <laughs> uh, he's, he's gone. He's gone. <laughs> oh no! Oh god! What did we do? We killed him. The sheep have taken over. Uh, okay. <laughs> Oh my God, Steve! Did you watch anything this week? This is like unfriended. Yeah, yeah. it is like unfriended. <laughs> He's actually just been killed. I'm afraid to talk right now. Yeah. Well, no, actually, what happens in unfriended? Because I sat through that because I I like to torture myself. Um, is actually you only get killed when you leave the conversation. So. Oh. Yeah. So Myros is dead. Um, but the, the rest of us are fine for now, as long as this podcast never ends. What if there was like? Uh, what if what there's? How long we could hold that silence, by the way? <laughs> we'd all just die. Uh, what if there was like a speed, like a movie called Speed Dating, and it was about speed dating, but the speed was also in reference to the movie Speed. So where it would, the, the moment it, you stop speed dating, you die. Yeah. You have to you have to get through fifty five dates an hour, or, or, or that, you explode. Your icebreaker is pop quiz hot shot. <laughs> I guess, I guess speed. I guess that would just be the third one, right, or the fourth one. Yeah, speed. I guess that, that, yeah, that would be the third one. Or and you could probably we could have it set on a boat too, like it's a singles cruise. So then you can also incorporate elements of the second movie. I think that'd be the best way to go with that. Yeah, speed three dating control. Perfect. <laughs> you got that one, Hollywood? I know you're listening. You can have that one for free. Guys, I hate Hollywood. Start <laughs> <laughs> a blog column about it. <laughs> so you were asking me if I if I had watched any movies. Yeah, did you watch. You didn't watch shit last week. What'd you watch this week, Steve? Well, last week. Uh, this week I did. Um, I wanted to take a different approach. At least I wanted to try and find films that I think could be described as hyperlink cinema, but at least aren't part of that. Um, I don't even know if it's a comprehensive list, at least as far as like going through like uh, the Wikipedia definition. What's, what's more comprehensive than Wikipedia? Come on. Yeah, well, it's true. Um, but I did um, when when we started talking about the subject, I was instantly brought back to the uh, Jacques Tati film Playtime from uh, 1967, and. Um, the main thing is that it does involve this main, the main character of, you know, Hulo, um, who has mm. been, in, you know, the character of many Tati films. But um, the entire film is based around um, the idea that industrialization is killing culture and, you know, modern apartments and office buildings are taking us away from beautiful things. So the whole film takes place in Paris and there's all these like American tourists going through this like expo of like all these modern inventions and all these characters. There's just no real central plot. It's just these characters sort of run into each other or crash into each other throughout the entire film. And um, it sort of reminded me when you were when we were initially discussing the uh, definition 
of uh, hyperlink cinema that there is like sort of this topic that surrounds the film that um, modernization and industrialization is killing our culture and within this film we have again these characters that are just kind of like running through this entire sequence of going through these new buildings um, running through this new Paris and a lot of them don't even have names. There's just like this really boisterous American businessman and all these other people who just like, um, I don't know. <laughs> like, they just, there's, there's no point of them all being together in this film other than they're just in this world. And it's mm-hmm. really just sort of like this big glass box. Oh, and, sorry. um, I don't know. Do, I mean, have, have any of you seen that film? It sounds I think Myros kind of... has. Myros, are you back? Were you killed uh, by the ghost? Uh, am I back? Yeah, you are back. I was. I was afraid that um, you, you you got. We, well, Jake brought it up that we were afraid you got killed by the ghost from Unfriended, but apparently uh, you're you're alive. <laughs> I can still hear things at that point. I, something. I I don't know. I have this uh, nice setup where there's like two Wi-Fi networks, and my computer like signed onto the the shitty one. Oh. So uh, I think too much Minecraft now. over there. Yeah, it could be a Minecraft-related issue. Uh, <laughs> I I don't think I've seen that film. I think I've seen another uh, Hulu film. But uh, it sounds like Hulu does Koyani Scotsy. It seems like it has really similar themes to uh, the the Hulu film that I I did sit through. A lot of a lot of uh, Mr. Bean running through fancy future houses and what have you. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect of it. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot like Rat Race. Uh, that's what you're saying. It's definitely toned down in this film. Um, <laughs> I know it took um, it took Tati it was like three years to complete this film because he had to build all of the sets, and it's I think he wound up going broke from making this one film. Um, but it, obviously, with it being a film that was released in '67, that definitely predates uh, the time frame we're talking about as far as when Hyperlink Cinema first began uh, if we're mm-hmm. going back to just like, you know, the mid-70s with Robert Altman. Uh, sure, sure. I've seen um, it. I really like the film. Yeah, it's fantastic. I um, uh, what, do you, what are your, some of your impressions? Sorry, not to interrupt you. But. It, no, it's fine. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, ostensibly it's about um, just people and how society is and how you know it is forming to be and how they everyone interacts with other people and there's um, I think the second half of the film takes place almost entirely at that restaurant where it all just literally comes crashing down together which is sort of fun <laughs> to watch but it's a yeah it's a very beautifully shot um, well made movie and the fact that it took so long to make I believe I believe it it took three years to make that's it's it's pretty crazy I mean well, do you think it, do you think it fits in with a oh go ahead Steve. With the hyperlink. Oh no, 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 no! Keep, keep going, keep going. Sure. Fits in with what? Do you think it fits in with hyperlink cinema? Um, yeah, I would say so. Uh, th- there's, it's not really so much more of, you know, that Hulo is in it, but he's almost a, a sort of a fringe character at some parts, and it's just, it doesn't really follow anyone specifically, and it's, it's kind of, it doesn't really have a straightforward narrative. It just, it's just a, a series of situations. It, it really is what all it is. Mm-hmm. If anything, he may be the audience surrogate. Yeah, yeah. He just he just occasionally pops up and something happens. The other thing I was thinking about here is you guys mentioned this, and and there's no, from what I understand, I haven't seen this movie, but um, there's there's no like strong individual narratives going on. They're just sort of like these people existing in this world, right? So yeah. mm-hmm. does that make it different from hyperlink cinema? Because we're just talking about like 
you know, the camera just following people in this world, then doesn't something like Slacker or something kind of fall, yeah. fall into that same yeah, category? Yeah, I was thinking or is that something of, different. I was thinking of uh, Linklater too, uh, Richard Linklater, when we were originally doing this as well. Like, I was thinking about Slacker. I was thinking about Waking Life. Um, and I think that there's at least a parallel. I mean, if it doesn't officially count as hyperlink cinema, I think there at least has to be some sort of relation to that idea. No, I def I, I definitely through looking at other people's lists, um, I saw Slacker on there. I saw plenty of other movies that I thought were plausible. I I don't know. Nobody's probably paying attention to the Wikipedia page, so that, that's probably the worst thing to use is like any sort of parameters. Um, but definitely Slacker, I I would think fits. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say yeah. If, if you expand the definition so it's not like, you know, definitive structured narratives that just happen to converge at some point, uh, then yeah, I think I think it makes sense to include that. Yeah, I was looking at like the TV tropes list, and it had like uh, it, it was like loosely defining it in the most simplistically way, uh, simplistic way possible as uh, films without a main character, like, which I suppose again, Slacker would nicely fit into that category. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's, I feel like there's exceptions to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I guess the other question I had with this is we've we've discussed how like books do this all the time, all the time, and it's it's no big deal when a book does it. You know, we don't have some fancy term that Roger Ebert popularizes for when this happens in uh, literature. But do do we see it in anything else? Like, say, music, for instance. Is is there some sort of like musical equivalent to this at all? Like, album, like albums that like take turns or something like that from track to track? Sure, sure. Or maybe maybe they just, yeah, like uh, explore different styles within the same well, uh, album, but there's like definitive... Every single album. Beck album. Every yeah. single Beck album. <laughs> yeah, the Beck, uh, the Beck catalog. Um, <clears throat> another one uh, that was sort of like started to do this but quit probably under their own... The, their, like, finding out that it was sort of implausible to do, is um, Broken Social Scene um, <clears throat> started to put out um, an album by, like, each person in the band was going to, like, do a Broken Social Scene album. And they, oh, got, yeah. as, they got as far as two. Um, but each one was, like, really different um, and show, showcased different styles. Yeah, well, because I, I remember when uh, it was, like, Broken Social Scene presents Kevin Drew. Yeah, which is and a then- great album. Yeah, well, I, I I don't remember anything about it. I know I listened to it when it first came out, and I was just like, oh, whatever. But I think like the general consensus was, that's ah, okay, but it's not broken social scene. So uh, I thought it was quite good, but then the next one, it was like the second man in charge, and uh, that one wasn't as good, and they were probably like, okay, if we keep doing this, like we're not going to be able to make a good record in like eight years. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, too, is most of the people in that band play in other bands. Like, it sort of started as, like, a Canadian indie rock supergroup of sorts, so, yeah, it would have taken them forever. I mean, it's it's not as stupid as, say, I don't know, Sufjan Stevens deciding, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write an album about every state. Yeah, I don't think you're going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I watched Magnolia. How was that? That's something that I haven't seen in a long time, and it, it's it kind of left a, a crash taste in my mouth, and I really don't want to see it again because I actually like uh, P.T. Anderson's other movies, so I don't I don't really don't want to watch that one. Yeah, for me it had uh, been a while, but uh, and, and I was interested in uh, reevaluating it because um, I hadn't. Yeah, it I loved it when I was in high school, um, but. Uh, 
First of all, Quiz Kid Donnie, played by Bill Macy, uh, has the same exact glasses as Rick Moranis in uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is fun. <laughs> Clearly uh, tailored his look after that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the the theme here in this movie is sadness. Like, So, so some of the characters are are uh, connected through plot lines, but, but the over, overarching theme is sadness. These are all people who are sad. They're lost, in need of connections and reprioritization. So as we can probably see from this discussion, a lot of these movies are about connections. Um, but uh, Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't really ground the sadness in anything useful for the most part, so it ends up like more often than not just being like grief porn. Um, it doesn't do a whole lot to explore the sadness of some of the characters. There's, there's like, there's even like he makes like this very deliberate um, framing for the movie. Um, so bookends of talking about cons or not consequences, but um, chance. Uh, yeah, chance and coincidence, but like. I was I don't maybe I'm I'm just being daft but like I don't know I didn't notice anything as like coincidence I didn't think of any of this stuff as chance this is all just stuff that would happen in a movie that we wouldn't be like whoa like that how does that happen like it's just stuff that happens in a movie um it didn't didn't strike me as chance um it's like you know a, a dad's dying and they are trying to reconnect a guy like a cop loses his gun Stuff like that, like it doesn't like it doesn't strike me as like super coincidental. Anyway, um, so like we have motivations for a lot of the characters, but too often like he just ends up manipulating their sadness and like painting with like really broad strokes. Like when Julianne Moore, this is another scene that I loved in high school. Julianne Moore goes to the pharmacy and and uh, she's getting like a ton of like serious drugs, and uh, the 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 um, dude at the at the counter is like the most condescending unprofessional like you could possibly imagine or I, I can't even actually imagine like someone actually doing this at a pharmacy um, and it's just to like get her to have this like breakout uh, scene where she's being really dramatic um, but so, so in that sense it's a lot like Crash but uh, and Steve you mentioned how a lot of these hyperlink movies um, the, the pitfalls uh, is that you get stuck in like finding out which ones are the best storylines. Mm -hmm. uh, and that definitely applies here. Um, the the main story, like, surrounding Jason Robards, um, which includes Tom Cruise, Julianne Moore, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, that could have been a movie. Like, that could have been a good movie, too. Mm -hmm. um, like, it didn't need any of the other stuff done. Like, as long as he would have cut down on, like, the scenery chewing, which is ample throughout the movie. Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, Cruz, who has been uh, everywhere in the news recently, um, he he's really good in it. Um, it's like a movie where his scenery chewing is like it makes sense as like this sort of like proto MRA. Um, it, was a, it was a big deal for him to do that movie. Um, yeah, for sure. And just to like it really, I think a lot of people predicted that it was going to alter the course of his career at that point, which it really didn't, but I agree with you. Like, I actually, um, I've, I'm not a huge fan of Magnolia, but I do actually enjoy his performance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's, like, that's the thing, like, between him and, like, Hoffman, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman is, like, absolutely incredible. And he doesn't even, he's not a main character. He's, like, of all the, like, the, the main actors in this, he he has the slightest part, but 
Um, he has like this super subdued part, and it's just like his instincts are just like so good, like that he probably noticed all of these actors like trying to win an Oscar, and he was just like, I'm just gonna act like a real person. Um, but uh, it also one thing I noticed. Um, this is kind of a side note, but I feel like Phyllis Seymour Hoffman, like most of his best scenes throughout his career, have taken place on the phone. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, like yeah. the Mattress King. Yes. <laughs> the Mattress King. <laughs> the mattress well, and, King. and doesn't he in, in the Mission Impossible movie that he's in? Doesn't he have a really good scene where he's like on the phone, like screaming at someone, and he's just like losing his shit? I think so. I think there's that one. There's Magnolia, uh, where he's uh, calling for for. T.J. Mackey, um, Punch Drunk Love, The Mattress King, almost famous, the best part of the movie, uh, the only worthwhile part of the movie. Um, in Happiness, doesn't he have like a... Oh, yeah, he's, he's getting yeah. all pervy on the phone in Happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. so that's that was that was probably the most interesting <laughs> thing about rewatching this. But, yeah. What yeah, about him being awesome. on the phone in uh, The Master? Oh, yeah. He never was on the phone in The Master. <laughs> oh, maybe I'm it thinking is, of like right. when he was... He they was didn't have phones back then. <laughs> hey, who needs a phone when you can drink paint thinner with Joaquin Phoenix? So, um, like, Jess, I will say though, uh, John C. Riley is amazing in this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and Melora Walters, like her storyline, kind of sucks. Like, it's like so John C. Riley's great, and then Melora Walters is like her character development is basically Coke. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> You know, Sean, the real question is, though, is this the best movie ever made about frog rain? Oh, gosh. <laughs> See, I, I haven't watched shortcuts. I, I, mean, I don't that... even want to talk about the, the... I don't want to talk about the the frogs. So in shortcuts, it was a it was an earthquake, right? Right, yeah. That's, like, having just watched that, it struck me as, like, I haven't seen Magnolia in ages because I had no patience for it, especially once the frogs hit. But, uh... I uh yeah it's it's so structurally similar to shortcuts it's it's really like shortcuts like makes sense <laughs> right yeah they they have this inciting third act incident which is an earthquake in uh, Los Angeles shocking <laughs> uh, as opposed to frogs raining down from the sky <laughs> it's but the thing is in Magnolia after all the frogs rain down everyone just kind of has this you know sense of enlightenment that they're gonna go out and be a better person. But in shortcuts, after the earthquake, which is just some minor trembles throughout the city, after it stops, everyone's like, oh, whatever. And then they just go back to being the same nasty people that they were before. And yeah, which I much prefer. <laughs> exactly. And I actually I watched Magnolia when I first saw it. It was many years ago. And then I didn't see shortcuts for the first time until, I'd say, two years ago. And just watching Shortcuts, I'm watching like, oh, wow, this is very similar to Magnolia. And then when I finish Shortcuts, I'm like, I think Paul Thomas Anderson owes a good amount of his career to Robert Altman. Yeah, I think he actually worked. Uh, I think he, like, weaseled him, himself onto, like, his set multiple times. Like, he, he was his, like, protege, or not even that, but um, he just did, like, guinea pig stuff on Altman sets. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but, uh yeah, I mean, also Boogie Nights kind of follows us, even though there's definitely a main character. But uh, one of the other hyperlink movies that I watched that was on the list, on uh, multiple lists, that also does that is City of God. Um, there's there's an overarching narrator uh, who's also a character in the movie. Um, so I don't know. That was it, it, the more more I looked into this concept, the 
the more flexible it seemed. Yeah, the more, yeah, the more, exactly. It's like, oh, this could actually encompass a lot of different things. And City of God, a lot of these movies, too, are just like, it's like a list of things I haven't watched since 2005. <laughs> like, that's basically the, the other theme yeah. of all these. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Think about a lot of them, like the Inuritu stuff. I'm a, I'm a, I like Inuritu. I think he's a really talented filmmaker, but it's like stuff you don't really like yearn to revisit. Like I had to make myself watch Amores Paros again. I'm like, mm-hmm. I really like the movie, but it's just these movies are generally kind of unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell us about Amores Paros. Uh, it's I, I've just watched that this morning. It's probably been five or six years since I saw it last, and it's really. I it was one of the, my favorite films I watched for this uh, topic here, but um, it kind of starts off a little rough. Like it's it's definitely in that uh, post uh, Pulp Fiction world. It's it's not borrowing from Altman much at all. It's definitely more of a Tarantino inspired thing, and it's got a real it's deals with dark subject matter, dog fighting. There's there's lots of dog death, which is as a dog lover very difficult to sit through. Uh, but <laughs> influenced by uh, DMX's Rough Riders anthem music video, no doubt. So, I like how I like how dog fights is your trigger warning. It's <laughs> it's, it's not uh, it's not fun to watch uh, if you're into dogs because there's about uh, ten dog corpses just uh, throughout the film. I mean, I'm more of a cockfighting guy myself. <laughs> well, yeah. Who cares if a rooster dies? That doesn't bug me. It's dinner. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's got a real verve to it. It's a very energetic film, even though it's dealing with heavier subject matter than you're seeing. It doesn't have the humor of Pulp Fiction, but it definitely has the energy of Pulp Fiction. And the first segment with the dogfighting kind of feels, which again, Inuritu and what, Ariaga, I believe is the guy who wrote all the, uh, Hyperlink in your Ritu films. Uh, yeah, all the movies that are basically structured in the exact same way and explore pretty much the exact same themes. He well, wrote one screenplay, and then there were three movies. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, well, I guess Amores Peros is a lot different from the other two. I'd say the other two get a lot more heavy-handed and bogged down, and I think one's yeah. successful and one isn't. But Amores Peros is the most successful of the three because it's a it's a more unique film. It's uh, from really, what I remember, from what I remember, it it knows how to use like subtlety as part of like its its narrative progression. Well, the symbolism, uh, the various things the dogs represent throughout the film uh, right. are it's really a well written and well conceived and well realized film. And where it deals in tropes kind of early in the film, uh, as it moves from one sort of interstitial to the next, it's uh it definitely gets a lot more surprising and original, so it's... Again, this is a film that holds up, and uh, if you can deal with the the dog violence, then uh, mm-hmm. check it out, because it's, it's a really excellent film. Well, and if we're talking about, like, its, its strength is subtlety, I think that could be a, a big reason why 21 Grams fails, because not only is it sort of heavy-handed, uh, but Sean Penn is probably the least subtle actor ever. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, uh, also see, uh, from the same year, Mystic River. Yeah, yeah. Mystic River, Jesus Christ. That's just Sean Penn, like, just going between whispering and yelling. He's, <laughs> he's kind of like like a Nicolas Cage that people take seriously in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, I think that's one of the reasons I liked 21 Grams when I first saw it, was because I had just seen Mystic River, and I was like, man, he's a lot better in this. <laughs> 
Yeah. Mystic River is just a dog. That's a terrible damn movie. <laughs> Um, I just like the fact that 21 grams taught me how much weight I lose when I die. <laughs> <laughs> City of God, when I, when I, uh, so I watched uh, most of City of God, um, and it immediately struck me, it's been a long time since I've seen Amaro's Paris, but I was like, this seems influential. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seemed, seemed influenced by Amaro's Paris, at least aesthetically, but... Uh, it still sticks up not only as a good movie, but uh, uh, it it's pretty much Brazilian Goodfellas um, meets The Wire. <clears throat> but uh, super good movie. But uh, it, it's not the most hyperlinky movie ever. <laughs> but, you just uh, coined a new term. Hyperlinky. Um, Traffic. I did watch, <laughs> which uh, is also somewhat similar in aesthetic, or at least tries to be. Um, mm-hmm. And that also has Don Cheadle. Um, this is... I, I could only... I was trying to figure out... So I haven't seen this movie in a long time either. I feel like we're all in the same boat. Um, sure. I was trying to figure out uh, what he's trying to explore other than, like, this is what drugs do to people. Guess what? They're bad. Um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, oh, no. I thought they were really good. I'm not sure. And, I mean, I'd be open to, like, uh, more complex arguments. But I didn't... I, don't remember any getting anything poignant from any of my prior viewings, and I wasn't willing to stick around for more than 45 minutes, even though this is one of the cool Don Cheadle roles. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Don Cheadle is... Jump he's really shark. good at, at, at being good in movies that I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> or just being in critically how... acclaimed movies that I don't like, period. If I remember about Crash, he knows how to flick a cigarette. He does. He, he He's actually a really cool smoker. In Crash, that's probably the coolest part about that movie. Like, there's this one part where, like, he's uh, he's like in this field in the beginning, and he's just like poking at a shoe with his pen. He's like moving the cigarette around in his mouth. People don't understand. Uh, it doesn't even matter if you're a veteran smoker, because I smoked cigarettes for years. It is really hard to like keep a cigarette in your mouth and just like do shit because the smoke just goes up your nose, it burns your eyes. It's horrible. So props to Don Cheadle for being a really cool smoker. Have you ever poked at a shoe, Steve? <laughs> All the time. Actually, that's that's what I do. Normally what I do is I light up a cigarette, and then I go and I find a crime scene, and I just start poking at shoes with my pen and picking things up. <laughs> Probably not that hard in your neighborhood. Oh! Hey, I'll, I will have you know, Steve, that since we started this podcast, not a single police car or ambulance has driven by my apartment building. <laughs> <laughs> the quiet night in Shorehood. Let me tell Shorewood you. nights. Shorewood <laughs> nights, baby. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I mean, to me, it says something when like a filmmaker who I find is consistently experimental and interesting, as Soderbergh or as we were talking earlier, Michael Haneke, are just like rendered inert by this format. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I was kind of trying to think about how to contextualize that with uh, uh, within Woody Allen's um, career because. Uh, and I'm sure he, like he's done this a lot, even though it wasn't um, in many lists that I read of, of hyperlink movies. But uh, I'm sure most of his influence comes from literature. Um, but he did it in uh, Shadows and Fog, Everyone Says I Love You, Hannah and Her Sisters. Um, somebody said Melinda and Melinda. I don't know if that exactly fits. Deconstructing Harry, kind of. But that's more just short stories. But... Um, and each of those, like, some of those are really great. Bullets over Broadway, that's really great. And some of them are just not good. I don't I don't think I'll ever watch Everyone Says I Love You Again. I still remember that one good joke from it. 
what's what's the, you, you know what, what's the one good joke? Yeah, Alan Alda, who's uh, like this rich like conservative fellow, um, his his daughter <laughs> tells him that uh, she's voting Democrat, and he says, uh, "Oh, can you uh, run upstairs and grab my will and an eraser?" <laughs> There you go. And now that now that you've heard that joke, uh, you don't have to watch the movie. We did it. We did it for you. That's just one of the many services that Optimism Vaccine provides. You don't have to sit through a Woody Allen musical. Hey, that works for me. So let's try and figure out if if you if someone was like, this will never come up in casual conversation. If someone was like, hey, I want to know what the ultimate hyperlink cinema movie is. If you're trying to explain this concept to people, because when I was at dinner, uh, some of my friends were like, oh, what are you talking about on the podcast? And I tried to explain it, and they're like. Oh, and I'm like, yeah, you know, like Crash, but like the stuff that's not shitty. And they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. They were like, oh, like Suriana? <laughs> oh, Jesus, don't even fucking start with me. Um, <laughs> what? And, and it's funny you mentioned Suriana too, because that popped up on a lot of these lists when we were doing research for this uh, for this podcast. And I was like, oh wow, I I did not remember that movie being like that. And that's because I remember nothing about that movie except for George Clooney's beard, because it is like the most glacially paced, worthless fucking experience I've ever he had also, to sit through. He also gained 40 pounds, didn't he? Yeah, he was fat as shit. All I remember like, is someone gets electrocuted in a swimming pool. That's yeah. all I remember. He looks yeah. like like super obese Jim Morrison, like Lizard King taking out my penis era Jim Morrison. <laughs> Jake, do you, Jake, you didn't happen to watch Siriano in, in the recent past, did you? Um, I, About a year ago I may have, oh, I think, wow. actually. Yeah. Um, it is... That's a film I didn't quite get on my first viewing back when it came out on DVD, and rewatching it here, I tried to kind of give it my all, and I I I still don't know what's going on for the life of me. There's it's it's um it's all just very slow and convoluted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember not enjoyable remember. at all. I think I think you know the Clooney is probably the the best part about it, and you know his yeah. scenes I kind of you know perk up too. But um, other than that, it's just kind of it's just a slow, dull film. I remember, I remember like oh, go ahead, thinking, Sean. I remember thinking that they were trying, you know, they're like attacking oil or whatever. Uh, that they're trying to fit like a fire truck into like a suburban like two car garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good way to put it. Well, the only thing I remember about Syriana, other than fat George Clooney, is uh, the like the only part that really surprised me was when it ended. Uh, one because it just sort of ended it out of ended. nowhere, if if I remember correctly, and also the fact that oh, it finally ended. I did. I thought this was just going to go on forever. Yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't really have a proper beginning or ending. It just kind of starts and stops, and just we look at these people's <laughs> lives for two hours, and then it stops. Is that is that is that, your, that that could be your uh, back of the box quote? It's yeah. it starts and stops. Boy, George <laughs> Clooney's fat. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> To answer your question, Steve, uh, if I was gonna pick like an essential hyperlink movie, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure Pulp Fiction like is is a good answer. But mine, even though I don't, even though I like shortcuts more, it would have to be uh, Altman's Nashville. Okay. Um, it just it's it's a beautiful movie, but uh, it just does all of the things that I I mentioned in in my taxonomy. But it does it all really well. It captures like uh, it captures this scene, this. Um, the city, it captures the music scene, it captures like Americana as like its theme, um, in a really cynical and, and incisive way, and uh, and it it's all culminates to this one thing that happens. Um, I don't know, it's it's a really nice, it's one of the best new Hollywood movies. Cool. 
Uh, Myros, how about you? You get you got one movie to try and explain this nebulous concept to someone. Doesn't necessarily have to be the best, but like, what's the definitive? Ah, the definitive. That yeah, if I'm, it's nowhere near my favorite at this point. But I would probably say Babel because I think it's just like it does exactly what you you. It's basically kind of a boilerplate version of this done well. Like mm-hmm. it's it's exactly what you expect the cliches of this genre to be, and it's executed quite masterfully. It's not a movie I really want to watch again right now, but it's I liked it at the time. I think it's a very good movie to watch once, and uh, it uh, really kind of defines this genre. I, I think that's a good choice, too, and I, I don't even like Babel that much, but if the whole reason we're talking about this is because... Uh, obviously, Inaritu and Ariaga, the screenwriter, like they, they sort of revitalized this genre for the, the mid 2000s or whatever, and that was like the third and final movie. So that's them like completely, you know, polishing and honing what they started with Amores Perros. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's that's probably a good choice. Steve, what do you got? What's your what's your pick? Horrible uh, Boston. Horrible hell. Uh, <laughs> horrible Boston two. <laughs> That did come out. Oh yeah, that's been out for a while. I uh, would probably go with. Um, I'm. I'm just gonna go with Crash. Fuck it, because um, <laughs> if 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 we're that's, that's the best response. <laughs> 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 Crash. Fuck it. <laughs> but but if we're doing this in the context of like just trying to explain this genre to people, I feel like that's like the one thing I could always go to where if somebody's like, oh, so what's uh what's hyperlink cinema, and I could say Crash two thousand four, and be like, oh, and where are you in Wisconsin? We get it. Uh, I'm more like uh, Eden Oshkosh or something there. I'm like more awesome. Eden. Eden Prairie, Minnesota is what I'm thinking. But, uh, <laughs> sure, sure. Or White Barrel Lake or something like that. Plus, um, you know, Crash, Crash has some beautiful themes that it explores, like, uh, you know, can, what's the deal with racism? Can I, share, can I share an anecdote about the time that I saw Crash, by the way? Sure. I, uh, I was studying abroad in um, Sydney in Australia, and... Uh, a group of us would go see movies, like, every Wednesday, and I was, like, stuck with, like, these fucking... I don't know, and just some very insufferable people. They were very. Um, there's this one guy. He was like from Pittsburgh. He went to Purdue. He was uh, just kind of this like all American asshole, basically. Um, and we go to see Crash, and he, we, after we leave the theater, his first comment as we leave, he's like, "You see, nothing that like like that would ever happen in my city of Pittsburgh." You know, it's a big city. <laughs> Racism doesn't exist. It's just bullshit. And I kind of said, but like, the movie takes place in L.A., Chris. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, but you yeah, see, yeah. see in uh, Pittsburgh, it's basically all white people. So you they know, got problems. Oh, we got bridges, we got white people. That's all we got. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. That's like saying, that's like... Uh, I'm sure like a bunch of like suburban kids like saw this movie and they they went back to the suburb and be like I don't see any of this stuff happening. Yeah, and it's it's like oh god, there's so many things I hate about Crash. But all of this all of this is like giving that too much credit because yeah, it, it's it's just it the safest movie about racism ever made. Like oh god, every scenario is like oh of course this is horrible. 
Like again, in in that opening scene after John, Don Cheadle gives his shitty speech that I roll my eyes at, there's like a woman who who gets out of her car and, and like there's a, a Latino woman and an Asian woman who are in this crash, uh, the the, the titular crash, and <laughs> the the Latina woman's just like because the the police officers show up and she's just like make sure you put in your police report that. I got I got hit by a dumb Asian woman woman because Asians can't drive and the Asian lady who's just like super stereotypical like bref, breakfast at Tiffany's fucking Asian is just like, <laughs> just like I think well, really did play that maybe character. maybe you should get deported because you're Mexican and you you don't have papers and you probably have a lot of babies like it's just every stereotype they just fling them that's yeah, that's all they're doing just flinging stereotypes and then I guess yeah the message of the movie is is it bad when that happens it's kind of bad. Doesn't she yeah, replace yeah. her her R's with her L's too? Like oh yeah, a lot, lot of lot of that going. On. It's it, she's basically like it's like she's doing a Miss Swan from Mad TV impersonate. It's fucking <laughs> horrible. It's not okay. I remember the line like, uh, "Why don't you park your car in the grass?" Because that's what you Mexicans do. And it's like, oh, now we're getting into the real issues of race. Yeah, that's that. The, Paul Haggis is going to figure it out. Jesus, I, uh, yeah, fuck that's uh, my, my definitive that uh, hyperlink movie. We didn't even get into uh, the Marshall movies, the Love Actually or Valentine's Day, which uh, more or less they used this. I, I think that they used this format uh, not only because it was popular, but just to fit as many stars as possible into a movie without having to have an actual developed story. Oh, yeah, you need a box office draw somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, why not use Taylor Swift in your movie? I mean, that's that's kind of a surefire way to get some people in seats, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm actually going to make a plug for uh, the movie Ten by uh, David Wayne. I, I have no idea what that is. Ten. Uh, so David Wayne uh, from MTV's The State, uh, Wet Hot American Summer, the series, which is now on Netflix. Uh, a few years after Wet Hot American Summer, he did this ensemble comedy called The Ten, which is about the Ten Commandments. And there's basically ten stories, so there is a separation where there is seems to be no structure, but at the end of the movie actually all the characters wind up coming together. Oh. Um, I just, that just sprang to my mind right now. Um, I think I've actually of, seen that before. That's one of the, I mean, b- back when Blockbuster Video existed, that's one of those things I remember seeing on, on the shelf, because I think there was another movie that came out around the same time called The Nine, starring Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, and I was just oh, like, yeah, it's, it's funny, because there's a nine and there's a ten, and yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I saw the ten with you, Kev. Mm. I don't remember anything about it. It's, I mean, it's it's pretty good. It's not as good as like Wet Hot American Summer or anything else David Wayne or Michael Showalter have done since, but uh, it's at least an example of a comedic hyperlink film. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I remember that in time for this podcast just now. Hey, that's that's right when it counts, man. Well, I guess I have one of those too, since. My favorite movie that uh, I watched in this whole process was uh, pretty comedic, and it also has a, an, a singular protagonist, which, uh, again, kind of helps with the narrative flow and uh, makes it a little more tangential to uh, the topic. But, you know, everyone he meets ends up kind of being connected, and it draws together in a unique way, and that would be... Uh, Martin Scorsese's film uh, After Hours, which a lot of people forget about, but it's actually a very excellent film uh, and a ton of fun, and it was the most fun I had prepping for the podcast. Uh, As fun as uh, his last temptation? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, that's a good... Hey, if if you're listening out there and you've got children and they're having a slumber party, throw that one on. (laughs) 
It's a good double feature with Caligula. I will say that uh, After oh, Hours is my Christ. favorite DVD to borrow from Sean Glynnis. Keep for three yeah, years. I think uh, that sat in the back of my car, much like uh, the infamous or the famous uh, car taxi scene. Isn't there like a After Hours shot that's takes place in the back of a car? Or he loses his money. Yeah, the yeah, wind yeah, blows yeah. away his, his That was almost that was almost my actual uh, DVD of After Hours. Yeah, that After Hours is super underrated. Go out and watch that. If you haven't seen it, watch After Hours. It's a ton of fun, and it I don't know, like people never talk about it, even though it's a Scorsese movie. Like, uh, is it anything? Is it anything like Miracle Mile? <laughs> it, it's basically <laughs> the same thing. But yeah, it's like even even the DVD release is just like. I don't know, they begrudgingly put it on DVD or something? It's no, super no, no, bare bones. Came, I mean, it is bare bones, but it came in one of, like, uh, like two in one year, um, Scorsese box sets came out, and besides, like, Raging Bull they were all, and Goodfellas, they were all just, like, very just basic just to get a box set out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I mean, it's... I guess it was like a plagiarism accusation going around with it, which might kind of affect its reception and the way it's uh, viewed now. But uh, I don't know. It's it's really really well written. Uh, it's got Scorsese's style all over it, and it's just a it's really wonderful film. All right, so uh, Jake, what's your pick? Oh, Vantage Point with Dennis Quaid for sure. <laughs> don't sleep on the Quaid man. Force I'm more Whitaker, of a Randy right? Quaid guy, personally, yeah. It's um, it's a tough to just narrow it down to one film because I mean, not only are there so many good examples, but there's different types of hyperlink films. There's some with um, multiple viewpoints. There's some where the narrative is structure is played around. The beginning is the end. The end is the beginning. All that. I mean, I would probably just have to say, you know, Pulp, Pulp Fiction is probably. The, the one for me. Did somebody say that already? No. no, no you got good. it. Yeah. All right. I want to say, yeah, Pulp Fiction would probably be just the best single representation for me. Just for somebody to sit down, shut up, and watch something for two and a half hours, I think, you know, they would be fine with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to have to agree with you, too. I mean, as much as I want to say Vegas Vacation starring Randy Quaid, um, <laughs> <laughs> Pulp Fiction seems like the obvious choice. It's it's just such a great movie, and it still holds up. So, you know what? I, I don't care if every cargo shorts-wearing, acne-faced teen who thinks Donnie Darko is the pinnacle of filmmaking loves it. It's fucking good. It deserves to be loved. So, yeah. I also... I I should mention, I also watched, um, for this project, I watched Go, the Doug Lehman film, which um, I saw many years ago, and I liked it. I thought it was pretty cool, and uh, it didn't hold up as well this time, but I still, you know, it's still a pretty fun and breezy 100-minute movie. Uh, The thing here is it's all centered around a drug deal, and it's told from three perspectives of three main characters, and it has one girl's story, and then it goes back to the beginning and tells the next guy's story, and then it goes back and tells another story. Um, but if if you haven't seen it, it's 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 you know it's worth a view. I would say. Is that the movie where uh, they they use lens steal my sunshine in it? Yep, yep. Yeah. When they when they steal a Ferrari, they steal my sunshine. Ah, there we go. More yeah. movies need to use Len. What do you think yeah. Len's doing right now? Uh, I think they're catching resids from Derek. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think they played Summerfest. They they probably did play Summerfest. I'd imagine. Yeah, they opened for Smash Mouth. It's a lot of no doubt in there too. 
That's all you need in a movie. A little bit of Len, a little bit of No Doubt. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Gwen Stefani and uh, Bushman's relationship. I remember kind of digging the uh, No Doubt song from Go. I haven't heard it probably in like five, ten years, but... Which one, new? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. It was new. It was funny because it was a new song from No Doubt called New. Yep. Is that funny? <laughs> we call that one a knee slapper where I come from. That, that's classic comedy. Classic. I don't care classic. who you are. That's funny. We got Jack Benny over here. Ha! <laughs> uh, okay. Myros, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm putting over, for, for whatever is it, Shortcuts has a, a long scene of a fisherman stumbling on a body in the river. Uh, Huey Lewis is in that scene, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it reminded me of a classic 80s film called uh, River's Edge, starring uh, Keanu Reeves and, uh, what's his name, Crispin Glover. And, oh, Crispin uh, Glover's so good in that. Oh, and also, uh, what's his, Frank Booth. Uh, who am I saying here? Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper. Yes, uh, that's a tough one to come up with, Dennis Hopper. Ah, uh, Anyway, it's a movie uh, that's really nihilistic and uh, a lot better than it has any right to be. And check it out. Yeah, it's it's really good, really really good. Plus, I mean, you know, you got Crispin Glover and Dennis Hopper in the same movie. I I would pay ten dollars just to watch them argue for an hour. Right. Is it better than the River Wild? Yes. <laughs> Is it better than Mystic River? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, there we go. Uh, Jake, what are you putting over this week? So I gave this some thought, and I wanted to try to connect it to the topic this week. And I, there's a movie I rewatched recently that I really like. Um, it works probably – it's like the best self-contained hyperlink film you could see, um, the time travel movie Primer. Uh, it Yeah, it um, two guys – it's basically two scientists are messing around in their garage, and they discover time travel, and they try to use it for their own gain, and then it – drives them apart essentially but watching it rewatching it again because I've seen it several times and every time I watch it it's like seeing a new film and I just there's like bits and pieces that I pick up that I haven't seen before and you know it's not necessarily a film that you need to get to enjoy but um, it is definitely worth a rewatch if you've seen it already I think it's streaming on Netflix but yeah, it deals with multiple timelines and multiple perspectives from just these two guys and it's, it's, uh, it's just great it's like a perfect little movie it's only 70 minutes long too I think Oh, definitely yeah. one I need Good to rewatch. Choice. Sean, what are you putting over this week? Um, well, first I have to, I have to go on a bit of a tangent because over the last five minutes I just got uh, irate because I realized I haven't seen my Criterion of uh, Last Temptation in probably the last five years. Oh no! So uh, in a tradition I started in the early days of this podcast, if you're out there and you have my DVD of Last Temptation, um, I'd like it back. Um, <laughs> give it back. But uh, I still haven't gotten my uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much uh, DVD. Would you settle for a copy of The Man Who Knew Too Little? No, but I like that. (laughs) I was at a bar in Milwaukee, and I was, was, like, taking a piss, and there was, like, a mirror on the wall in front of the urinal, and I glanced up, and Bill Murray was looking back at me, and then I turn around, and there's just a fucking movie poster from The Man Who Knew Too Little just hanging in the bathroom. (laughs) Looks like uh, he knew uh, way too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what what I'm gonna put over um, is a book that I've been reading as part of a book club that I'm in, um, and it's called Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. It's a fairly popular book from last year. Um, Roxane Gay is a well-noted author um, who talks about uh, 
feminism and racism and all things political and civic. Um, and this book is super, super great. It's called Bad Feminist, if I didn't say that already. Um, and it's personal essays, and they're all, like, pretty short. Like, you can read a couple of them in a sitting. Um, and uh, they're personal essays about a lot of different issues. Some of them are tangential to the, the book's thesis. Some of them aren't. Um, but it's, a, it's, like, a really addicting read, um, which... It's the first. It, this is the first time that's happened to me in, in in a long time where I would rather come home and, and read than than watch TV, um, and it, it's it's moving and it's funny and it's just really interesting. So, give it a give it a read. All right, good choice, Steve. How about you? What are you putting over? Uh, this week I'm gonna put over BratProductions.com. What the fuck is that? It's a uh, brat as in brat. But B R A T Productions. Um, something I just sort of stumbled on the other week. Um, it's this. Uh, he's some sort of DJ based out of L A. And um, he has tons of mixes and videos. And I honestly don't really care about any of that. I'm more interested in like these mashups that he does. And um, he's sort of slowly building a unique collection of mashups. Uh, one of my personal favorite, at least the idea, not the conception as much as he mashes uh, Boston's more than a feeling with Blur's Beetlebum. And uh, that one doesn't work out as well, but um, and I, I came across him, though, or at least his site via a uh, mashup he did of the Smiths Stop me if you think this, stop me if you think you've heard this one before and tears for fears everybody wants to rule the world and uh it's actually like it really works and it's sort of like this feeling that you're hearing a brand new song for the first time but also the songs that you're both familiar with like you hear them differently as well so and it's basically just um stop me if you think you've heard this one before instrumental with the vocal track from everybody wants to rule the world mm. and somehow it really works um and there's a lot of other examples of on the site as well um so i don't know it may be something worth killing time over if you're uh, find yourself needing to kill time does it does it like, work as uh, well as the Smash Mouth Lincoln Park mashup that I heard today? No, but that's actually what kind of inspired me to do this for my <laughs> uh, to put this over this week. Um, maybe I'll just put that over too. The Smash Mouth Lincoln Park. I don't. I don't even know the name of the Lincoln Park song. Uh, I don't know. Probably like dreary, sad face, bleeding or something. But I, I recognize the song. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, is it somewhere I belong? Or is that it? No, it's like, I, I tried so hard. Oh, yeah. I tried so, so hard. That one. Yeah, it that, doesn't that even one. matter. Yeah, it doesn't even matter. Even matter. Yeah, the rapper guy's like, yeah, I try real hard. Yeah, that one. One thing. <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. We got it. So they, they, just, they take the music from that. you for. <laughs> they take the music from that, and they just put the vocal track from All Star over it, and it fits perfectly. It was, it's like they're the same song. It's beautiful. Is this um, not Neil C.C. Rager or whatever? No, no, it's not. It's not him. It's just some asshole on the internet. It's great. There's and there's like, it, it, they didn't even like Neil C.C. Rager, however you say his name. He, you know, he'll slow things down, speed things up, so they kind of fit together. And this, it just sounds like the two songs are playing at the same time, and it just works. It's great. Um, well, this week I'm putting over something kind of weird. I, I, this this might be unprecedented here. Normally we put over you know books, movies, uh, articles, things like that. I'm putting over a person. I'm putting over Hulk Hogan's daughter, Brooke Hogan. Uh, <laughs> she is incredible. So, 
If you're not familiar with Brooke Hogan, she had kind of a, a false start on her pop star career around uh, about a decade ago. Uh, and she's been back in the news lately because, first of all, she's gone from like a hip-hop pop star to a country music superstar, and she just put out an album today, which I haven't listened to, but I'm sure it's awful. Uh, she also decided to go on Entertainment Tonight to sort of clear the air and defend her father. <laughs> so I'd like to read you a quote from an interview that Brooke Hogan, real living human being, presumably with a brain in her head, said about her father. She said, quote, I feel bad for my dad, but I also feel bad for the African-American fans and stuff because they don't know that he didn't mean it. Oh? <laughs> and then she goes on to say, but this is something that we have to put a stop to every day because I'll be honest with you. She's talking about her father's racism. I've had a black guy call me a honky, and I've also been told that white people smell like bologna. <laughs> Brooke Hogan. White people smell like bologna. Uh, Thank you. The, pr <laughs> the, princess, the princess of reverse racism. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> like how, how who has ever said that that doesn't even make any sense I think maybe the she just stuff. specifically smells like baloney yeah does, she, does Brooke Hogan just smell like baloney and then I was thinking about it and the, the Hogan family aside from you know being known for their pop stardom uh, both Hulk's career and Brooke's career as pop stars and then Hulk's wrestling career the other thing they're known for is having this like this like orangey bronze pinkish hue to their skin. They all have yeah, this weird, hot dog like, skin, right? Hot yeah, they all have hot dog skin. skin. And uh, what is hot dog? <laughs> a hot dog is merely bologna in tube form. Yeah. That's all it is. So I believe that Brooke Hogan is made out of bologna. <laughs> and I, I really I I I've yet to hear an argument that could really counter that. That's that's just the way it is. <laughs> So, on that note, if you're listening right now, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. If you haven't gotten around to it, please rate us. Please write a review. It helps with our visibility on iTunes. It helps more people discover us. Make sure you're sharing our stuff with everybody. Uh, make sure you go to shepherdexpress.com to read our weekly column. And this week, we're going to have an article about, who else? Hulk Hogan and Bill Cosby, written by Steve Coleman. So, you can, you can read that. Uh, we've got videos on YouTube. We've got more stuff on optimismvaccine.com. If you've been paying attention to our podcast lately, there's a new episode of Sharking the Jump with uh, Steve Coleman and Sean. It's great, so give it a listen. And with that, Steve, the final word is, of course, yours. Nope. <laughs>